Hey everybody, welcome to a bonus show, special edition, Brian and I together, um, talking to a guest, it's been a while, it's been a while <laughs> since we've done this show together like this, but um, we got an offer to speak to a new podcast in town, something that uh, intrigued Brian and I as soon as, as soon as we found out about it, it's called Crackdown, and you can find it on iTunes and SoundCloud and all of your normal podcast locations and it is a um, podcast about the dr- war on drugs um, with drug users as the journalists is like uh, what is it what is it what do they say war journalists on there right yeah nothing about us without us is my favorite thing that they say on there right like they can't make laws about us without us but it's about the drug war from people who have used drugs and so today we have actually Garth the guy that you'll hear when you subscribe to the Crackdown podcast. And uh, I'm glad to have him on. Thanks for being here. How are you doing today, Garth? Good. It's it's excellent to be here. I wish I had some of that menthol vodka uh, right now, but uh, <laughs> some smooth drinking pleasure. But I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. The menthol tobacco vodka is That's very right. popular. And I think we're going to have a, two cases of it maybe soon. So, uh We'll get you some sometime. Excellent. Yeah, we'll get up there. We'll get you some menthol tobacco vodka that people are disgusted by. I'm going to set it, set aside a bottle um, in my cellar for you. Thank you. The special, <laughs> special reserve. <laughs> so uh, I listened to the show. This is a show that I think is really important. Uh, me and Brett have talked. But one of the things that we've always said on, on Street Fight and when we started was like, we're going to be very open about drug use. <laughs> Because if you're able to do that without, you know, losing your job or something like that, it almost is a responsibility to actually do it, to show that even that normal people use drugs, too. It's like the, the, you only get one, like, really narrow picture of, of people who use drugs on, on TV. So it's important that if you're, if you're a person that uses it, that, that you let people know. Uh, so that they can see that, you know, the stereotypes are inaccurate. But we do it on a comedy show where we say a bunch of bad shit about, like, stealing and stuff like that. And what I loved about your show is that it sounds like it's a real podcast. It's like it sounds like something you could hear on NPR or something like that. But it's talking about something that never gets out there. So what made you decide to I mean, you talked about this in the first episode, but you hadn't truly been open about your use until you decided to do this show, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm a dope fiend from back in the day. You know, I was heroin, injection heroin user every day for over a decade, and I've been on methadone for a lot of years ever since. And I, I it's not like I was secretive about it, but I kind of didn't advertise. You know, like I didn't go around saying, hey, check this out, interesting fact about me especially not to potential employers or something because, you know, they're not going to hire you. They're going to think that you're untrustworthy and you're going to steal office supplies. And actually everybody steals office supplies. So I don't yeah. know. I, don't, I mean, I actually, I'm, I'm pro stealing office supplies. Like, a, so are we. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Like I, I actually think you should try to find ways to take a little bit of your life back from the people who are buying it off you an hour at a time. That aside. Uh, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't just advertise that. And uh, I, but I, right here and, and all across North America, there's such an incredible overdose epidemic that I started trying to count up the amount of friends I'd lost. I got to 50. It just, it did my head in. I, 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 was, I was completely spun by that. And I realized I actually had to start coming out of the, the sort of the closet or the shadows on that and saying more, more loudly uh, that I was a drug user. And I've done uh, sort of freelance journalism and, and freelance radio production a little bit. And I thought it'd be good to put all those skills together. Right. We're in Ohio. So, uh, and I former, I used pills. I didn't like get to heroin because I don't know. I, I, I think maybe I got a little weirdly lucky in that I have also had like a mental breakdown at a certain time. And, you know, you talk about this a lot in the show, but the doctors don't really give you much of a choice about what to do. They're kind of like all of your problems stem back to these pills. There's nothing else that's causing you the problem. You have to stop taking these pills. So I ended up getting going to rehab and, and, and quitting 
Uh, well, I got kicked out and then I quit. <laughs> but uh, did you ever did you ever try the rehab thing at all? Oh yeah, I mean, I I definitely tried different um, cold turkey strategies, and uh, it never worked for me. Like I just I I guess I I think in episode two I talk about this one plan I had to get get myself uh, clear of drugs in four days, and it was just it was laughable. In fact, I played it for our uh, sort of drug user activist union here, and they all laughed at me during that part of of the podcast <laughs> when they heard that. <laughs> and, and sorry. I formulated a bunch of plans too during that time where it was like, uh, oh, next week I'll just buy less and I, I won't like, you know, if I just buy less, then I'll make it spread out over the two weeks. And it's like, that's not how it happened. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, uh, like if I only use on the weekends and like Arbor Day and Labor Day and uh, Veterans Day and, and every other Thursday and the odd Wednesday, then that's, that's a plan. That's a harm reduction plan, you know. <laughs> that was actually the beginning. My, my, when I first, so I got kidney stones when I was 19 years old and they prescribed me Percocets. And this was in like the early 2000s. So I had so many of them. I mean, it was crazy the amount they were handing out. I think if there was a point where I had like 150 pills in my house. Do you still like, have any? No, I wish. Sorry. But I took every one of them. <laughs> but uh, they gave me all, like I had all these pills. And then I, once I finished those, you know, then you got to go to a dealer, which there were a lot of pills out on the streets at that time in, in, the, in Ohio, in like the Midwest, and especially in this area. So they were fairly easy to get, but I would take them on, I'd be like, I only take these things on Friday and Saturday. And then I said, I only take these things on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then I only take them Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then, you know, by near in the end, it's like, um, in the end, it's like you're taking them every day. And, and, and the worst thing of it, I always say that, like, I don't think the pills were necessarily like, like almost they weren't really negatively affecting me. It was getting them that was negatively affecting me. That was the main problem was that I had to go chase a guy down and, and all of these things. And, and that has become even worse now with, with heroin because of the, the fentanyl and the bad mixes and things out there. Oh, the most dangerous thing about drugs is that they're illegal. I mean, that's, that's the problem. That's what'll kill you is the law, right? If, every pharmacy has a safe version of the thing that they're selling on the street that's going to kill you. And it's the worst thing about drugs too. You know, if you have the money and a stable supply, then it's okay. You know, it's like the, the classic idea of alcohol prohibition. Everyone's favorite drink before prohibition, the day before it started was beer. And then prohibition starts and all of a sudden, uh, you have to transport this stuff. So you have to make it a smaller volume and stronger and everyone's on moonshine and people are going blind and getting sick and dying and eventually when alcohol prohibition goes away, everyone's favorite drink again is beer. So it's like, they, you know, it's like maybe people are just using pills and then you got to upgrade to heroin when you get cut off the pills. You know, when you get stuck in this illegal system and it just increases all the risks and harms. Yeah, and it is, I mean, I would say it is hard to get your life together too when it's just running around. I remember trying to do that, like trying to score all day long and then being like, I was supposed to do fucking errands today. Like I really want to do errands and just be fucked up all night. But like I had no time because this guy kept telling me 45 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and and uh, there's even been, I, I heard a reference to like a Portugal type system, but I, I'm wondering uh, how much you know about, um, you know, the systems where medically supplied opiates are given to people. Have you, do you know much about those systems? A little bit. Um, Portugal is where drugs are decriminalized, so you can right. have a 10 day of supply of drugs on you uh, and not not get arrested for that. But but they don't have the safe sort of prescribed opiates. Okay, and, the, and we are actually going to Portugal in a month to go and figure out the good, the bad, That's and the other works and everything. Yeah, so we're, so stay tuned for that. This is going to be awesome. Um, I've never been there. It. None of us have ever been there. It's going to be great. We're going to get lost and found, and we'll see what happens. But. Uh, what Sorry. I'm, Mexico ha is a little easier to get. I, I think Mexico is easier to get opiates, right? Like, for some reason, I've heard that it's easier to get opiates in Mexico. Yeah, so. I don't know. I've I, I've I've done I've done 
black tar in California a bunch, but I've never gone much souther of that on my journey of opioids. But uh, to get prescribed safe, like pharmaceutical opioids, I think they do that in uh, Sweden. And they used to do that in the UK, uh, sort of started phasing it out in the 90s. But I was living in London just right at the end of when they were doing that. I was I was too young to be like a eligible for that. But oh, I was wow. a dope user there nonetheless. But um, yeah, so that it's like a, it's an old idea. It's actually been around in the UK for decades. But uh, sort of all the drug war panic and everything convinced people to get out of that in a lot of places. The moral outrage. That's I feel it, like yeah. in the late, in, in, I feel like that's what we had here in the late nineties, early two thousands, almost, it wasn't explicitly said, but there were these pain management clinics that people could go to and they would be given a, a supply for a month and they had to keep coming, but it was still shady and it was still way more expensive than just scoring on the street. It like this whole thing seems geared around an idea that people are going to quit if we just make it harder to get. And it's like, no, people are never going right. to quit. It's the, I, I don't know how you articulate, cause I know you I, talk to policymakers and I'm always like, I want to just sit down with a policymaker and say, I am never going to quit using drugs. I'm always going to use drugs. It's never going to stop <laughs> so that they can understand that like you're they're they're fighting a battle that can't be won. Well, the next time we get to sit down with policymakers, I want you to come and say that. Like, it's, <laughs> they, need, they need to hear that, you know, because it's just this illusion. We've had this illusion in Canada for 110 years, and you guys, for just a, that's, that's when they made the Opiate Act up here to make it illegal. You know, when you guys had something pa passed in, like, I think 1914 or something. And it's just like they've been trying to make people not use drugs for so long and it it not only does it never work it just always gets worse and it's also very odd uh i have a friend who works in the medical field and uh have talked to him about you know kind of my beliefs around it are just if somebody wants pills you give them pills and, and like if somebody wants heroin hey, let's give them pills <laughs> like let's just give everybody the pills so they can easily uh, dose. I'll give you one pills. more. Let's give them heroin. It's well, yeah, it's diacetylmorphine, and pharmaceutical manufacturers make it. You know, yeah. like we can just give the people the thing that they're doing, and it would stop all of this carnage. You know. Well, this guy use has 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 uh, experience with drugs. And he said, so you're just going to let people waste their lives. And I'm like, we're letting people waste their lives now, like searching for illegal drugs. We're sending them to jail. We're set. We're locking them up in rehabs for 90 days. They're losing their lives off the, the high powered shit or, you know, whatever. The it's, it's, it's such nonsense, right? Like because batch. every morning I take an opioid that is legal and prescribed it's methadone. Right. And last week, I probably worked 100 hours. It was crazy. I shouldn't do that because, you know, day jobs and podcasts and everything else. And it's just, it's like, it's, it's not the opioid that, that ruins it. It's the law. It's the unavailability and it's the contamination, you know? Like we right. have, we, I, I'm sorry. We figured this out with weed, though, too. You know, like, it's, it's the thing that I think is frustrating to me is that we have figured this out with weed now. That like, oh, really successful people use weed, so it's legal now. And it's like, are we going to have to wait another 60 years for them to figure this out with, like, you know, oh, in 20 years, they'll figure it out about mushrooms. And 20 years after that, it'll be LSD. 20 years after that, it'll be cocaine. 20 years after that, it'll finally be opioids. Like, I don't want to fight for that long. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, shit, there's going to be no one left, right? There's so many people who use opioids and drugs in North America there's going to be like a by 60 years from now that the population will be in half, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I've, I've lived through this too, because I graduated in 2002 and some of my buddies that moved away to Kentucky, we went down to party there. And I remember them being just like, have you heard about this Oxycontin shit? It's the bomb. And there was tons of it available and they were giving it out. And I do feel like there was also an evangelical turn. I feel like with George Bush, things did turn to like pray the gay away and, uh, abstinence only programs. And, uh, you know, we've just really adopted this horrible stance on it. And, I mean, this and is people are afraid to, to acknowledge it. And, and we're losing people like the, the, the crazy thing, Garth is there would be a weekend where some bad 
fucking heroin would, would go out and Brian and I would both lose somebody that we knew. You know, it would be like just all over the weekend, a whole bunch of people would just be gone. For for first I mean, they weren't they were they were still loved by people, you know, they were still like a part of they were still a part of the world and of the community and everything and and now they're taken away from us, um, you know, for, uh, because of prohibition. Yeah, I mean, we're we're planning the memorial for one of our editorial board members, Sharice uh, Kiwatin, who died just uh, last week. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, and uh, while we were while we were making the episode, which is about one of the things that may be related to <laughs> to how she died, you know, and it's uh, it's it's like endlessly fucked up to try and be forward thinking and strategic and and thoughtful about this stuff while you're just constantly being inflicted with hand grenades of grief you know every every week or every couple of weeks you know it's it's uh and it's it's perplexing you know you make the link to to george bush and and sort of that turn to the right i just i i feel like the more harsh and alienating and right-wing and authoritarian capitalism gets the more we alienate people, the more drug users you're going to make. You know, so like those people want to say, just say no, just say no. But they're just throwing fuel on the fire by driving down the wages and making our lives more precarious and ruining the housing, just tearing apart the society, you know, so that we're not even as connected to each other as we were. And they're not living clean either. You you know what I like? There's this illusion that there's all these people out there that are coming after us for the things that we like to do that are, are doing this like clean living thing or something when like a lot of these Xanax is a drug, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And a lot of the stuff that even the drug warriors are, are are using a lot of those things. And it's, it's, it's very frustrating to, to try to explain to them like, no, this is the same as the thing you're using. But um, I wanted to ask you, because uh, I know you've you've talked to researchers and you've you've been doing this for quite a while, and it's something that I've been thinking. I had been thinking. I just lost a friend, uh, like late last year, and um, they OD'd on fentanyl, and and they were hanging out with like three other people, and uh, they didn't call an ambulance or anything like that. And uh, I, I'm wondering how often that is the reason that something like this happens, too, is that the people in the house, because of prohibition, are so terrified to even call 911, because if they call 911 and the police come, they're going to arrest them. Because I have been to parties with alcohol poisoning where somebody definitely had alcohol poison and they definitely needed to get their stomach pumped. And it was a 50-50 proposition if they were going to live. And I was just lucky that they lived. You know, yeah. are there numbers on that or, or is that something that people talk about? I, I mean, one of the things we realize is there's so much overdoses that they don't they don't sort of investigate an autopsy every time it happens. that Someone dies. So I think they don't know all the reasons why or what happens. But for sure, I mean, all across the states and parts of Canada, they're starting to charge people who they call dealers, but who may have supplied the person who overdosed. Um, they're starting to charge them with uh, manslaughter, right? So, you know, you go, you, you're the person who goes, get, gets everyone's money. Maybe you go get some drugs, you bring it back uh, and you, you guys all fall out or, or, or um, one person dies and overdoses. You can get charged in some jurisdictions in North America now with murder and they're going after people like that. So of course people are going to be terrified to call 911. And I like, 911 is a joke in your town, you know, yeah. like <laughs> for real. And um, like, I don't blame them, but everybody who's listening to this podcast should try and get a hold of some uh, Narcan or Naloxone. You know, it's the, it's the thing that you can, you basically draw it up and you hit the person with it, like inject them or, or they have stuff that goes up your nose and that can bring people back when they're in an overdose. And that's available in some places, in some places not. You can get it uh, over the internet and through the post now. Um, so, do that and train yourself to know how, even if you're not a drug user, uh, so m- enough people are that it's worth knowing. And right. there's a guy actually from, from Chicago who, uh, who Dan big, who, who was, a, a, a sort of a drug user activist who really was promoting that and getting those, uh, naloxone kits into places where even where they were not allowed, he would just t- send a big sack full of them to people. So, uh, 
we've always had to protect ourselves. We've always sort of realized no one's riding in to save us, so we better save ourselves. Right. And something that struck me about your show about about crackdown was that it sounds like you like in Canada, you have safe injection sites. Those are things that are I mean, that's a very controversial thing. I'm, I'm sure it is up there, too. But down here, they just aren't there. Uh, oh, yeah. People have been turned. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, especially in Ohio, people have been hit by this thing so, so hard that there are people fighting for uh, there are people fighting to put drug dealers, give drug dealers the death penalty rather than legalizing the drug. They, they're they regular human beings that have lost people that are fighting for the opposite. And it's like, what, what does that do to the memory of the person that you lost? You know? Yeah. It weaponizes it. It's, it's nasty. Right. And I, I really understand when you lose someone, you're looking for someone to blame and you want to lash out in anger. And I get that, but you think about the people who are left behind the other drug users are still, still using, maybe they have like a bit of a relationship with that dealer. It's probably not always like their best friend or whatever, but they at least know, okay, I know this guy, maybe the person's stuff, the, the, the dope they buy off them is, 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 is like consistent. It's okay. You know, um, maybe it's like the same kind of heroin week in week out. So at least they have a moderately safe way to do it. But then you arrest that person, you disrupt the whole local market, and then you're going to get a whole bunch of overdoses right after that arrest because they'll, the, the vacuum will be filled immediately with mystery dope that maybe some newbie is like mixing up in their house or whatever. And sorry, I keep saying dope, but that's probably like West Coast Vancouver slang. It probably means pot there or something. But anyway, I'm talking about heroin. So Yeah, um, we say weed here. I don't think we call anything dope in Ohio. Right. Or, or people probably people probably think what a faker he's like watching bad cop shows on TV, you know, like where they call well, it. You guys, you kids are all screwed up on dope. <laughs> I knew I it was that. real immediately. I knew crackdown was real when you were talking about being dope sick because that was something. Even I said that when I right. was when I was taking those pills, which that was one of the things that was heartbreaking to me. And I want to get into that is the uh, uh, the switch in 2014 from uh, so at first. The, the pharmacists were dosing. Can you explain to them how it was done at first before they made the switch? Sure. So methadone is like a nicotine patch, right? You, you use it to, instead of doing heroin, which you get high and then you get dope sick and you get high on dope sick. Methadone is supposed to be like a nicotine patch, which kind of just, it's a safer thing because it's from a pharmacy and it kind of evens that stuff out. It's supposed to last over a day. So, you know, you take it and you're never dope sick. You're never feeling high or anything, but you're just like, kind of like, you know, you're fine. Uh, and it's been made for decades and decades and decades and is generic and lots of different companies make it and, and it's been around. It's like the oldest sort of pharmaceutical treatment for when you get wired to heroin or other opiates. And then here in 2014, uh, it got switched. Everyone got switched to a big sort of big pharmaceutical company named Malacrot has this stuff, a branded thing called Methadose. And I think that's available in a lot of places in Canada and the U.S. I think the same thing has happened over different years, different times in different ways. But um, this company has kind of gone out of its way to find, um, you know, new markets and new places where it can, it, can, it can get in there. But it didn't last. So instead of lasting all day, everyone was dope sick halfway through the day. And that happened very fast and people had to go and score. So... 2014 is just when the overdose crisis was starting to pick up steam around here anyway. And all of a sudden you have thousands and thousands of people who were not dope sick a few days before starting to get sick. And, you know, when you start to get sick, mostly, I mean, for me, I'm just going to go and try and solve that shit really quick, right? Like I'm not going to be throwing up out of my mouth and ass for two weeks and hope something good happens out of that. I'm going to just try and get well. And that's what the people in episode two did. They, you know, tried to get, um, heroin to top up and uh, often that was okay. That was terrible for them because they had to start, uh, the whole life of getting up the money and going to the drug dealer and everything that they'd left that life behind. So they had to start doing that again. But then also we started to have this contaminated heroin here with fentanyl in it, or also with like, pig dewormer and like rat poison and brick dust and household detergents and all the terrible crap that just has been getting mixed into dope. And, and, um, and then people were overdosing and dying. So the dominoes started to fall for people who, you know, were, 
were actually doing all right before. Right. And this goes to something and and you bring it up in the first episode, but this goes to something about like they they describe drug what what they would call drug addiction. They they describe that as as powerlessness against uh, against the, the drug, but it, it's also powerlessness against like nobody needed new methadone. There wasn't a cry out for new methadone, a new kind of methadone that like, well, <laughs> they were claiming it tastes better. I, I believe. But- I don't know. Maybe the shareholders somewhere needed it. But I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I have, I have to turn to Sam here and say, am I saying anything that can, <laughs> when we're, uh, uh, he's, he gave me a thumbs up, but then kind of looked quizzical. So, but when we're, uh, have to, you know, we have to make sure we have all our journalism correct. If we're uh, talking about a big pharmaceutical company that has lots of lawyers. So oh, um, yeah. I'm making well, sure to do that. It's to me, it, to me, it's, there's a real thing about body autonomy here where, uh, somebody described the story at one, I, and I can't remember the name of the person and I don't remember an exact quote, but it was described as like, I went in and the pharmacist was like, I'm going to give you this stuff. Oh and yeah. That was like, my friend Ray there. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, what happened to the other stuff? And they were like, no, this is just the new stuff. They didn't consult anybody. They don't talk to people who use drugs when they form these policies or make these decisions. Yeah, and it's, that's it's true. Y'all, you know, that's yeah. something y'all are trying to change. Yeah, and and we have this uh, little advantage here because we formed a few activist groups together. So we all, as as methadone users or drug users, we can get together in a room and say, "This is what I'm experiencing." But until we did that, everyone was just experiencing it by themselves. You know, everyone was getting dope sick and they just thought, oh, is this my kind of old bad habits coming back? Or am I like, what's going on with me? You know, they, people didn't know. Uh, and so all over the rest of Canada and the world where people don't have a group where they can get together, some places do, but most places don't, um, people might not know what's going on, you know? And, and so then we can start to go, you know, dig up a, like a, a scientist like Ryan McNeil, who we have working on the podcast to, to research some of this stuff and, you know, put all the studies together and then go sort of cajole the officials into meeting with us and present the studies. And I mean, we still haven't won. We still haven't managed to change their mind, but uh, because they do, they do look at uh, drug users. Like when we come and sit down they're they're kind of now they're, they're kind of patronizing instead of just outright dismissive. Uh, but we haven't managed to change all that much. Right. It always feels like when, and, and this happens at the doctor a lot too. I, I think Absolutely. it's like, yeah. when you go to these places and you tell them what's going on, it's like an automatic assumption that you're lying. I don't know anybody that yeah, has they, ever. They, they accuse you of drug seeking behavior. And I'm like, well, what the fuck do you think I'm doing here? Of course I'm seeking drugs, you know? <laughs> but they what is your that. job? Is it your <laughs> job to give me drugs? You have that prescription pad. That's literally all you do here in this methadone clinic or wherever, you know? <laughs> that is, and, and and one of the things that you talked about with the clinics was that they make you take, you know, piss tests and how dehumanizing that is. That's one of the things that, there were a few things that got me out of rehab. Oh yeah, I, I've pissed liters or gallons gallons for you guys right i pissed yes. a lot of gallons of piss for them <laughs> i i actually when i when i went to rehab one of the things that was a big sticking point for me was was the piss test because i was just like i don't want to do it and they're like well you have to do it if you want to stay and i said fine i'll do it you know they finally wore me down to do it i was just like i'm not doing anything don't worry about me and um i remember having these conversations at the rehab place about a higher power and I'm pain in the ass and I'm an atheist and it's just such a, uh, this was just such a, uh, example of how they won't meet you where you're at. Nobody's willing to meet yeah. you where you're at. If you use drugs, they, they wouldn't move on until I identified a higher power. So the doctor. I, yeah, <laughs> I refused to do it and they kicked me out. They said, you can't come to rehab anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you're ideologically ill-equipped for rehabilitation. Get out. <laughs> Yeah, it was wild. It it was just such a weird thing because these rehabs, uh, a lot of these rehabs aren't licensed. It's it's hard to know, or maybe they're. I don't know. I don't think they're regulated. It seems like rehab in the United States, at least to me, feels like it is straight up just a business. There is oh here too. It's like the wild west. It's like anybody who's got a 
basement of their house they want to put some mattresses in pretty much can be like, oh, yeah, I've got the plan. What are the laws about Kratom in, uh, in Canada? Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's, I mean, it still seems to be everywhere, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. What are, what are your opinions on Kratom? Not as good as actual heroin. No, that's definitely <laughs> sure, true. Yeah, I can see. Why well, I mean, that. why fuck around? That's true. That is true. But it is something that seems like it's helping people. But in the U.S., they're they're working very hard to make it illegal. And uh, also, they tell you that that's not good enough. Like, no, it's, you're like, it, yeah, it's true. It's like it is. It is remotely enjoyable. So there, you'll be certain to see people trying to stamp it out and. And I can see people trying to use it sometimes to do less less heroin, you know. So I, yeah, I I mean it. I I I think one of the main reasons I haven't gone back to well, one of the main reasons I haven't gone back to looking for pills is that they're all gone in the United States. You just can't fucking get your hands on them. They're like caviar here now. But one of the reasons I didn't go back is is I think kratom really helps. I mean, I'm I'm like kind of I'm a comedian that performs in front of a bunch of people that know that I love opiates, and I've never had somebody hand me a pill yet. Still, it's very unfair to me that they've stamped them out as soon as I have like fans and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's it's not like drug users have gone away. Everyone's just doing something that's actually more risky. You know, so right. they've just made everything more dangerous by stamping out pills. It's, it's kind of one of the problems with this being seen as a a prescription opioid crisis when it's actually a and it, it's it's a prohibition or a, a drug war or a law crisis. You know, like if if we had true. access to the prescription stuff, uh, it would be way safer. You know, you just wouldn't have the amount of deaths that are happening right now. Yeah, you're right. And even a lot of the way that the news is framing it now is like we're going to get these drug manufacturers taking advantage of all those dope heads and giving them their medicine that they love so much. You know, like it's really it's not a matter of like prohibition is causing, you know, is what is creating this problem. It's, it's a, you know, they're they're trying to convince us that the drug manufacturers are taking advantage of people. That's not the conversation. The conversation is nothing about prohibition being a problem. Right, right. Because when the conversation happens, it happens between people, it happens between cops and teachers and fucking mayors and city council members and shit. Never somebody like me. I don't know how you, Garth, I admire the shit out of what you've done because I don't know how you got in front of anybody. (laughs) Oh, we just make a nuisance of ourselves. I mean, we've been doing it for for years, like since the 90s. I mean, part of it is this is my second overdose crisis. Like I've, I survived the first one. I'm hoping to survive this one. But at some point you just like you, you got to take those years that you get to have and make a pain of the ass of yourself. Um, and I guess enough of us have done that around here uh, that they have to listen. Also, we just break the law. Right. That's that's key. So you were talking about safe injection sites up here. Um, we started those all illegally first. So it's it's like not that they were given to us. We basically opened our own and said, OK, come and shut us down, like come and arrest us during a crisis and and see what happens. And and the, the government realized it would cost them politically to try and do that. Uh, so they they sort of ended up institutionalizing them, finding ways to live with them. That's how we got clean needles around here. That's how we got naloxone, like I was talking about earlier. Like fighting for stuff like this is how we got pretty much anything that's any good in society, like from minimum wage to the weekend to like any any decent thing that's always under attack. You know, all that stuff comes the same way. And I, I like I think that's what people got to do in any place that's looking for a safe injection site and and is is getting blocked a lot, you know, that maybe that old school civil disobedience where people risk arrest or maybe get arrest and take it through the courts and just really uh, raise the stakes, raise the costs on the politicians of doing nothing. Well, something that I think about, something that the police have been very effective at doing down here, especially the DEA has been very effective at is, is freaking people out about fentanyl. And I oh, think yeah. that's going to be a major stumbling block in getting safe injection sites here because i mean the cops are are before they go in on a call for an overdose now they're putting on biohazard suits before they come in i actually had we had a news story recently where a a prisoner in prison overdosed 
on on heroin and it they put a school on lockdown and they quarantined 35 prisoners and like a few cops shot themselves up with a lot naloxone because they just flip out about it and they're treating it like uh i feel like they're treating it like anthrax or something like that it's just so wrong like me and sam an hour and a half ago we're standing three feet away from a guy who was getting injected with fentanyl in the jugular. And we, we were holding a microphone up to that to see what it sounded like. And you'll hear it on the podcast. It's going to be oh. awesome. But we never even for a moment thought, oh, my God, what if a little piece of fentanyl powder gets on us? Well, they think it doesn't work that way. Fentanyl, when it was originally made, they had to make a special high-tech derma patch to get it to go through your skin. Like, I've done those. I, I, like, I know. You know what I mean? It's just it does not work. If they're worried, wear gloves. That's fine. Uh, like every time you hear one of those news stories about a cop overdosing, they're they're like have heart palpitations or whatever, and it sounds to me more like a panic attack. Especially if the cop is able to give themselves Narcan, it probably is an indication they haven't uh, they haven't overdosed. But yeah, it's a, it's a lot of hype, and it's kind of like a callback to the early days of the HIV/AIDS crisis, where they would also wear hazmat suits to like handle you know, a patient or something like that. And it's just, it's more like these people are untouchable. We can't be near them. You know, they will, they as human beings will contaminate us. That's what, that's what I read those biohazard suits to be. That, yeah, you're, that's absolutely right. It just, it, it has got these guys, these, they, these cops are like really high strung out here and they're freaking out about it. And they think that people just want to blow it in their faces. Like, uh, okay. The best thing that they can do then is they can either get some science and get a clue and learn or just stay far, far away from us. That probably the second one would be really good. If they just stood down and said, we give up, it's too dangerous and stayed at home. That, that would be a good solution as far as I'm concerned, you know? We have been trying to get the cops to stand out and stay at home for eight years on this podcast. Well, I, I celebrate your effort. I applaud <laughs> that. I join it. So um, I want to do uh, – Yeah, do we, should, we should have a campaign. Hey, cops, phone in sick. You deserve yeah, yeah. a day off. Just don't, don't come in. Brett used to want to, uh, Brett had this idea in the past about like doing a GoFundMe, like raising a big pot of money to pay the people who go around and give parking tickets to not go around and give parking tickets. <laughs> so we could, we could apply that to the, the DEA, which is, I mean, a truly evil organization. That so, uh, so you guys want to really record your conspiracy to bribe federal law enforcement officials? That's us. Well, that's... <laughs> I love it. This All right. Show, this show got where it is. This show became our job by saying we were going to do a bunch of illegal things on the radio. <laughs> we were got well, to listen. Shout out that link when you get it up. <laughs> we have a guy that listens that's a lawyer that we freak out easily once a week by saying something stupid. <laughs> so um, my question is, I wanted to know, like... What is your kind of history that got you here uh, to this point? I mean, it sounds like you've been a part of, you know, uh, of an active drug user for all this time. But what were like your pursuits? Like, is this the first go at radio or what's your experience there? Uh, I guess I've been an activist of some sort. I've been in the labor movement and I've been a dope fiend for all my adult life in one way or the other. And I also worked in college radio back in the day, community radio, and I've been a freelance radio documentarian for our public broadcaster up here, which is kind of like NPR. Okay. You know, so you can pitch them an idea and they'll say, yeah, go off and do that. And you, you kind of make a documentary. Um, but I, I just, uh, I guess I realized that uh, there was, that we were never really getting good stories and good journalism about this stuff. And so we wanted to invent a new way to do it. And we realized I, I wanted people to see the the friends that I have, like these people who are super smart about policy, who have tons of ideas, but who are also like in the trenches and that we're losing people every day. And there was never um, never a view of drug users like that. There was always just that that TV TV show kind of um, either uh, you know scapegoating or kind of oversympathetic. You you poor wretch kind of. Yeah, either it's either like 
this person looks like they have it all together on the outside, but in the inside, they're using drugs. And it's like, well, how do you know that they're fucked up on the inside? If, like, if they look like they have it all together, there's a good chance that they have it all together. Yeah, I mean, there's a worldwide wave of authoritarian bastards coming to power. Like, how can you not be slightly insulated from reality in this current moment? Like, how are people doing that without? Like, I don't know. I'm looking at Sam. Sam shakes his head. <laughs> yeah, Sam says he smokes weed. So <laughs> it's like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a rough gig. I mean, I feel like at minimum, everybody's smoking weed now. It seems, you know, when you go to a, we're not a legal state yet, but whenever I go to a legal state, I mean, everybody's getting weed. It's like that's got to be the price of admission for late stage capitalism, you know. It is. It is that I because we always used to say that too. That brave new world thing, where it was like they're going to give you these fucking drugs to make you feel good, so and then fuck you over. And yeah. it's like, where's the drugs that feel good? I can tell. <laughs> you where, where's my soma? We had yeah. an authoritarian state. Where's the fucking soma? That should be our demand. We got yeah. the Trump. Now where's the soma? I want an opiate of the masses. Yeah, a real, right. a real one. A real the one. Opium is the opiate of the masses. Let's yeah. have that. <laughs> so, did you Mar get Marx I was almost right? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I want to ask you this too. Uh, you you mentioned in the first show that you were in in a punk band and you played some of the music and it sounded pretty badass. Is punk what got you? Uh, is punk what radicalized you? Uh, yeah. I I probably helped definitely, you know, like you just, I got exposed to lots of good ideas through uh, like zines and, and some bands like old school bands, like the dead Kennedys and stuff. You know, I, I learned about us foreign policy in Cambodia through Jello Biafra and the dead Kennedys. So probably. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's such a miracle because it, it, you know, Brett was the same way. I, I had to go that like circuitous route. I was a conservative uh, for a number of years and I grew up listening to corn and Limp Biscuit and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then as I got, it took me until I was I just, I just fucking hate Limp Biscuit. I'm sorry. I just like, <laughs> just but, <laughs> look, I, I, uh, uh, I like the first album. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't even say. I can't disavow yeah. any of them. <laughs> I'll, I'm just going to get. Like, I, is that I, the one with, with like, did it all for the. For the no. Nookie? That's the no? second album. Okay. Right. Other. I'm talking about Sorry. $3 bill, y'all. It has <laughs> Faith on it. It has the, the cover of Faith by George Michael on it. Wonderful album. Right. Look, people are so happy right now. I'm convinced. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell you this right now. People are so happy that you just told me and Brett that Limp Biscuit sucks because they've been listening to this podcast for eight years. And oh, nobody tell again. Limp Biscuit <laughs> fucking sucks. Jesus, Fred Durst. I think there should be, I think it should, Durst should be an adjective. Like when someone does something stupid, that's ah, a real Durst, you know, or something like <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I'll say this, that I can't disavow them because I still, I think break stuff rules, but, uh, but corn, I think corn was a little better. I'll say that they were a little less gross than Limp Biscuit. They're still pretty gross. All of it was gross, but I think that led me. I think what happened was like that music was so anti-political. There were there it was apolitical music. It was all about depression and thinking inside of yourself and 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 blaming outside forces for the reasons that you feel bad. Yeah, where, like am I doing it all for the next? <laughs> <movie? laughs> that's, that's really can they take that cookie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And punk makes you look at the rest of the. I mean, punk makes you look at the outside world. Well, punk says I'm okay, and the world is fucked up. Yes, <laughs> actually, that's that's such that's so pithy, right? And that's so what we need to import into drug policy, because like you guys were saying at the beginning of the show, there the doctors are always trying to fix you, and it's like it's not me, it's the world, you know? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. One of the one of the other things I heard on the show that you said. I believe it was you that said that was just a really great thing that that not enough people say is that the doctors aren't allowed to tell me what this stuff is doing to me. I don't go to the doctor for them to tell me that this stuff is actually bad for me when it makes me feel good, you know, and uh, we're just we're we're given so little input 
on on the things that we're allowed to do to ourselves. And it's funny because in the United States, we don't have universal health care. We are, we have privatized medicine. And one of the reasons we have that is because conservatives believe that uh, you don't want to let the government be, get between you and your medical treatment. And I can't yeah, think for a big corporation to get between it. <laughs> yeah, we love it. We and, and <laughs> lack of money. It's great. It's wonderful. It's great that a bunch of people get rich off of it, really. But like they are always between you and, and your medical care. Your doctor is terrified to prescribe painkillers at this point, opiates, because they're afraid that the DEA is going to come and throw them in jail. That's right. You Conservatives know? should hate the drug war because it's the biggest government program that's ever existed in the history of government. It's the right. largest public expenditure, public employees, all this tax dollars doing all of this stuff. It's it's huge. They should all hate it. And it's a it, and a lot of it, you know, when you think about like uh, one Joe Kennedy, the third is a Democrat in the United States from Boston and uh, Boston just legalized weed uh, for recreational use. And uh, people had asked him in the past, what are your opinions on legalizing weed for recreational use? And he said, well, I think it's a bad thing because weed is a good reason for the police to get into somebody's car and search it. And they might find something like a gun or some fentanyl or something like that. And I'm like, fuck, he just said it. He like said it out so, loud. So because, because you can't have gun laws, you need to have weed laws so you can get the guns. <laughs> Well, and he said it out loud. He said uh, that this is a way for the state to fuck with you. That's all it is. That's why it yeah. blows me away that we, we have we have person. cops that make the same argument about about uh, arresting people for possession up here. We just I was just on the podcast with a with a uh, there's a cop that makes a podcast up here. He, he was essentially making the same argument. Yeah, that it's oh, that that it is that that's their reason that that that. The government can come on your property if it thinks that you're growing weed, if it thinks that if it even suspects you of growing weed or or, or anything like that, the, the government is allowed on your property. And these conservatives, they never have a problem with the government coming to bust you or throw you in jail. Their problems are always with. I don't even know what their problems are. Well, with the government doing something nice for you, like maybe a nationalized, you know, <laughs> uh recreational heroin law i mean i've said the thing that same thing about coke too and you're right it, it's just if people want these things then we need to make them safe and available and we don't need people jumping through hoops i mean me and brett have talked about this and i'm, I'm curious to hear what your opinion is on this but uh we said that you should have to go that you should be able to go to the pharmacy once a month and they kind of give you shit for it but they give you whatever your thing is like what what do you see the the ideal ending of this being the ending of the drug war what's the what's the plan for uh how we're gonna how we're gonna make this stuff happen like not i, I mean what what is i guess i'm asking you for a utopia like this you get to lay out your plan for how this ends like how how would how would we handle this in a perfect world well, you stop criminalizing people for using drugs. You give people a safe source of drugs. And lastly, you stop the giant masses of alienation that are driving people to use drugs a lot, you know, so that, so that people have more choice about not being in jail, um, the ability to get something that's safe, and also just the, the, the type of housing and job and traumatic insecurities that are all over their lives. You have that weight lifted off people. So the, a little bit more freedom, I think, can go a long way to that. Yeah, um, that's a lot of stuff. That's changing the whole world, and I want to do that. Uh, but in the short term, we actually proposed what still is a relatively radical measure, which is um, like a heroin buyers co-op. Here, uh, you know, we got together with some research people and some other drug users and wrote a paper uh, a couple weeks ago, and you know, put it out to the governments and the national media and stuff to say. Uh, look, if you just take the law off our back in, in one specific location, let us basically import diacetylmorphine, which is pharmaceutical heroin, to this location. Let us all pool our money together and do this and buy it. The taxpayer doesn't have to pay. Um, 
we can take something that won't kill us and no uh no like organized crime enterprise will benefit from our money because we'll be uh keeping it all inside the sort of legal and pharmaceutical system and you know we'll we'll see if they ever let us do that but we're at yeah. least showing how there are small fits and starts in which we could start to dismantle prohibition from the edges yeah that's a great fucking start yeah yeah i i, I like the idea of of just making it I, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies have to be behind this. I can't imagine that they would be against this. I, I think that they, I, I think it's strictly the government. If the pharmaceutical companies can sell us morphine, then they would fucking love to do that. You know, <laughs> it's not like that. The True, stumbling yeah. block is convincing people that we're not, because I mean, that's the thing is that all of the representatives out there say that you're throwing your life away, that you're killing yourself, you're giving people a license to kill themselves, and that is just not the case. This stuff is not that dangerous. I mean, it, it, if anything, it's like cigarettes, which is like, I mean, are people, I mean, people are dying. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just a decision you make with your body. Like, this is a thing that you're, you're a decision you make with your body, just like the decision to eat like a quadruple cheeseburger with bacon on it, or, or like a decision to skydive or run for, run a marathon or some shit like that. Like, this is just a decision. And it, it, it should be one that you're allowed to make. Yeah, I, I think that they, they've gone so far the other direction is they create all these negative outcomes from making that decision. That their approach to prohibition, all the laws and the police activity, that's what makes the chaos. That's what makes the, even the bad health outcomes, right? The bad health outcomes are because it's illegal. Like if everyone was using uh, you know, pure pharmaceutical-grade opioids, you, wouldn't, you would know exactly the dose. So you wouldn't have this massive epidemic of overdoses right people weren't the the amount of overdoses upticked when they started tightening the supply of, of pills Absolutely. we all saw it happen you know it's not a force of nature it's not moral character flaws or something like that it's policy it's it's you can look at that graph and you can see the stack of corpses it's creating and you know that leads right back to particular legislatures particular policymakers, particular decisions you know yeah, well, so I want to ask something about that we haven't. Well, Brian mentioned this briefly, but um, I guess what is your opinion uh, on like quitting on rehab and twelve steps or and therapy or you know what do you what do you think works? Um, what do you think? How how many people are just never going to give it up? Do you think? Uh, and, and where do where do you think the role of that it needs to come into play, like in the fight against this? Or to improve I, I don't know. Like uh, I could be on methadone for the rest of my life, and that's okay with me. Like right. I, I like how my life is. Um, <laughs> that makes me run afoul of the NA folks, the twelve-step folks. Sometimes, okay. But I know people that's worked out really good for them. So really, <clears throat> it needs to be about choice. Like we all, we got to have all the choices from like clean prescription heroin to like twelve-step abstinence, if that works for you. But we I mean, can't have people forcing you down one path that, that doesn't work because we just know that, that that doesn't work. Right. The 12-step thing, I know that it works for people, but there are times where it, it makes me feel like, I, I don't know. So I, my stepfather's dying right now. He's in, he's in hospice and uh, he doesn't like the opiates and he just wants to use weed, but you're not allowed to do that here. So they're just like, you, no, you can't do that. And he can't have that. He's got to take some weed into him in the hospice, you know, get the edibles, the gummy bears. And he's a 12 stepper though. And oh, so is my oh, mom. Yeah. And they both feel like if they use weed, then they're not sober anymore. But opiates and are okay. I apparently, well, it's just, oh, I got to join that 12 step. program. <laughs> Cause a doctor gives, they feel like a doctor gives it. Oh, to I you see. Yeah. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. But if see. you go out and just get weed, then you're not sober. I mean, my mom started taking CBD and was like, Oh, this stuff, you know, it really helps me sleep. And I was like, you, you should try the stuff with THC. in it. <laughs> she yeah. was like, it'll yeah. mess with my alcoholism. I'm like, no, it won't stop thinking in absolutes. And that's the main thing that a lot of these rehab programs do. They don't meet you where you're at. Everything's an absolute. You have to quit forever, you know, or 
basically it's you have to quit forever. If you smoke marijuana, that's a failure. If you take Kratom, that's a failure. If yeah. you take meth, that's a failure. And that's the dangerous thing. Yeah. That's the thing that sends people. I, I, did, I did sort of fail out of that approach. I did try NA and I got a lot of those keychains that are like the white ones that are, they say just for today on them. I don't know if you guys have those. Yeah. You know, you graduate through keychains, so you eventually get the black one or whatever that is for a whole year. I just got the white ones that are like for the day, you know, or, right. or you could be high right now, but you're intending not to be at some point in the day. So I have, uh, yeah, I, I still have some of those kicking around, but uh, like it seemed to work for some people. And so I don't want to begrudge them that, but for me, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And for, I don't think anybody who's forced to go there, like when the courts compel you to be absent and go there or, um, you know, for some other reason, like your family has some intervention and, and jets you off to, I mean, that didn't happen to me, but I've, I, I think that it has, and I've seen the TV show and it seems awful. Um, right. So like, I, and, and so if, it, if it's your thing if, and it's working, that's great. I don't begrudge people for that. But if, if it's, if it's forced and there's government programs that really line up to that sort of stuff, you know, all over, and that's it, that being the vision of success, like the idea of clean time, they always used to say, right? Because clean time means that I'm always in dirty time and like, I don't need that, you know, like we don't need to put it like that. Uh, so I, I think getting away from those, those absolutes, you know, that binary idea of, of things is probably good. You either, you either do drugs or you don't do drugs. There's no such thing as harm reduction to 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 those treatment programs and i think you know a theory i've always had about it is that when you tell somebody that relapse means that you're back using again that when somebody does relapse they can't just go back for a week or for a day they go back all the way in you know when when we can tell people like just be safe you know <laughs> that's yeah, my whole yeah. thing is be safe and do what makes you feel good but yeah, uh, I mean, dead, dead people never manage to recover. So if you don't, if you don't give people that opportunity to be safe, then you'll never, they'll never be get, getting down the steps on your 12 step program. You know? Hell yeah. Garth, I, I want to thank you for doing street fight and I, and, and all of the great things that you had to say, I think your podcast is fucking great. And I think your opinions on Limp Biscuit are way wrong, but I'm well, gonna, gonna I, let I, that slide. I have to I have to make some amends already. I think that's step four. Um <laughs> uh, because we are the country that's given you Justin Bieber. And so it's really not fair for me to be north of the border uh giving off with hot takes on bands. You know, like well, it, I, you gave us bare naked ladies. That's the thing that I hate. Me too. I mean, we could do a whole nother hour on bands that we probably both hate. So there's a lot of like ground to cover. <laughs> yeah. Mutual hatred. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Uh, it was awesome to talk to you and uh, exciting. I'm excited to have, you know, more of a professional opinion. You have, you have like a way smarter way of saying it than we do. <laughs> well, your show, your I, I really, I want to say this before we end. Your show really does have really great production values. It sounds good. It sounds like something that you could hear on NPR, and I think that's important. That I think there are two ways to do this thing, and me and Brad are just like an open wound. Like this is a diary. It's kind of we're just talking about what's going on in our lives and letting our listeners talk well, about what's going on in their you lives. Guys, you you put out three things in a week or something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so like we put out one thing in a month and we've done it for two months. So, yeah. well, talk to us in 15 years and see if our production values, like you guys have been going for 15 years, right? Yeah. Eight, eight. We're at eight years, right? Well, nine, we think we're at nine, but we don't know when we started. Right. Okay. Right. Corey. <laughs> yeah. well, it's still talk to us in eight or nine years and we will probably have lost some of our production values, but I'll tell you where it comes from. We have an editorial board which are all people who are drug user activists. Everyone's in the trenches. You go around the table, you got like crack users, uh, uh, speed, like crystal meth, prescription, heroin, methadone, all that. And from all kinds of different backgrounds and stuff, one guy had a butler when he was growing up, people on the opposite end of the spectrum who've been homeless for a decade, that kind of stuff, right? We really try to get that all in. And everybody said, you got to make it sound pro. Everybody looks at us like we're shabby all the time. Everybody takes our ideas like they're, they're shabby. They told us, make it sound great. Like, make it 
make it good. So we're really actually in all things, like to the extent that we ever sound smart, it's because we get to truth test everything through this board. And they just said, it's like, we want to go meet the world. So we're going to put on our nicest clothes and go do it, you know? That's great. I think it's important. I really do think, I think that all different ways of talking about this kind of thing are really important, but there needs to be, because I could play your show for people that hate my show in my real life. And I think it would be a really compelling case for, to them in in a way that me and Brett can't make. So I just, I want to thank you for doing it. And I think what you do is great. And I think your show is very important. Yeah, where where's the best way? It's on iTunes. Is it on SoundCloud, right? It's on Stitcher, iTunes, YouTube, and you can just go to the website, which is crackdownpod.com. Okay, perfect. Thank and you. Garth. Twitter, same thing there. So thanks very much. And the more people that that subscribe to this thing, uh, especially on like the iTunes and Stitcher, the more chances we'll get to keep making episodes and all that. So yeah, please, I I appreciate you guys having us on to to talk about what we do. Yeah, not a problem. We enjoyed it. Uh, go blow them up, Street Fighters. And uh, uh, Helmet did a good job. <laughs> I look forward to drinking that uh, menthol tobacco vodka with you guys sometime when you're on the road. Or There's something. a bottle with your name on it, I promise. We're getting, we actually, we're getting our passports. I got I have it written down on my uh, to-do list to well, get come our to pass- Canada. Come to Canada because I actually can't get into the States. So you got to go. <laughs> I'm going to smuggle a bottle in for you, man. I promise. Excellent. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Have a good one. Thanks.